Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. Today we're excited to be starting a new series of episodes with local professors at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Each of them has a wide variety of experience, both in education as well as in the workforce. So Brent and I really enjoyed talking to each one of them. Today we have Spencer Harris as our guest, and Spencer has really niched down into the area of sports management. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Spencer Harris. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Ratzbinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. Today we're excited to have Spencer Harris as our guest. Spencer is an assistant professor in sports management at UCCS. Spencer, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks so much for being on. And as per usual, we like to open up with an icebreaker question. And today the question is, since you are a professor of sports management, if you could describe your personality as a sport, what would it be and why? So this may come across as being a little bit cliched, me being British and whatnot, but um, I think probably soccer uh, or, or global football, um, primarily because I think my my personality can be fairly direct um, at times, um, uh, and we see in soccer plenty of direct play, but at the same time, um, I know the importance of changing things up and, uh, and changing my tactics uh, when the environment requires. Um, and therefore recognize the need where I feel I need to be perhaps a little bit more subtle or a little bit more nuanced or a little less direct. Um, and we can see that in some patterns of play in soccer um, also. Um, the other thing I like about soccer is that it doesn't always have to be, in a game at least, a winner and a loser. Um, we have the ability for both sides to take away pluses and to tie. Uh, and I recognize in my own personality um, particularly over time, um, the need to, um, in relationships and in working with others, the need to have uh, win-win situations where both people go away with something from the discussion or from the relationship. Um, and I think that's best represented in sport by the tie mechanism that we have in soccer. So if soccer best describes your personality, would you say it's your favorite sport as well? Um, certainly as a young person growing up in England, soccer was the be all and every, uh, be all and, uh, the be all. My goodness, I've forgotten the, the saying here. It, it was, it was, it was my life. It was my passion. Um, I wasn't really that interested or as interested in other sports as I was soccer. I feel like that's diluted as I've gotten older. Maybe maturity, maybe an interest in other aspects of sport as an institution and growing a a like or a fondness or an appreciation of the tactics and strategies of other sports um, whether it be um, baseball or rugby union or, or even cricket so I feel like as time's gone on I've grown a greater appreciation and respect for other sports beyond soccer but certainly as a as a child and as a teenager growing up soccer was the be all and end all yeah so Spencer, you're you're not from here. You're from another country. Um, so, what is the story of when you were growing up, and how did you get to the United States? 
Yeah. Um, so I was one of those teenagers in England that was convinced that um, professional football was waiting for me um, and that there was a career already. To clarify, is that football or soccer? Soccer. <laughs> so professional football in the UK was waiting for me to arrive and um, I was going to make it as a professional football. And it would have been hard to persuade me otherwise as a, as a 13, 14-year-old. Um, clearly... Um, the world and nature and everything within it had a different um, had a different reason for me being because it didn't work out with professional soccer, unfortunately. Um, but I did find joy in sport and in teaching sport, primarily practical sport in terms of coaching um, and coaching soccer primarily, which I really enjoyed. Um, and at the same time as doing that was pursuing um, an undergraduate degree. Um, in sport and, and part of the reason looking back was I couldn't conceive of myself doing anything else um, I think I'd lived a relatively narrow um, life in terms of my interests up to that point which were pretty much determined by this idea of soccer and sport and not much else beside that which I now recognize as being awfully limiting but at the time that was not a problem for me because I was so enthusiastic and so passionate about sport um, through my 20s, I pursued my undergraduate degree, uh, eventually my master's degree, and at the time was working as a practitioner in sport development, which essentially is, um, is a field of work in Europe where you are working in projects to get young people involved in sport and sustain their involvement in sport over time, both, um, both for the reason of health and well-being um, and having an active um, young population, but also for the purpose of trying to um, support the development of talent and elite athletes. So I worked um, for various organisations, most notably Sport England, uh, within the UK, managing various projects to get and keep young people involved in sport. Um, eventually, I took a sabbatical. Um, I took a year, year and a bit out and started working as a mountain leader, which sounds like a real left turn of a career trajectory. <laughs> I, I feel like I was at risk or very close to burning out. I, I was doing a lot of desk work, a lot of meetings, dealing with a lot of bureaucracy, which isn't the reason why I entered the sport profession. The reason I entered the sport profession was to work in sport but I found myself doing little other than talking about sport as almost a secondary concern because most of the concern was with the organization and the function of the organization, budgets, meetings, and like I say, an awful lot of bureaucracy. I think I became um, demoralized and I needed to get away from this career path that I was on and do something different. I was very keen to travel. I had my mountain leaders qualification and just decided to do something completely different, see whether that would recharge my batteries, give me a new joy of life, and hopefully help me to re-engage with a different level of energy back into my career after doing this kind of temporary stint as a mountain leader. So I worked in Cyprus, in Greece, um, Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, mm. and in Alaska and France uh, for a total of around about a year and a half uh, as a mountain leader leading British groups um, up various mountains in these different um, in these different places that sounds like it'd be a lot of fun yeah exhausting I fun. really enjoyed it I mean there, there's 
it's a very steep learning curve in terms of dealing with group mentality and human behavior when you're spending anywhere from Kilimanjaro was 10 days through to three and a half weeks in Alaska with the same people in a relatively confined space. Um, I, you know, I take far more positives away from it than negatives, but there certainly were some challenges that had to be addressed when you're, you're dealing with people in such intense um, environments. I did that for a year and a half um, and met who is now my wife, uh, a woman from Ohio. Um, and therefore we're all now dealing, or her and myself are dealing with this issue of where do we settle down? Mm. She's from America, I'm from the UK. Um, so we decided not to settle, we decided to go backpacking. Um, she was in her late 20s, I was in my early 30s, and we backpacked through Central and South America for close to a year. Wow. Um, really as a, we don't know what else to do. We don't know where to go and get jobs. We couldn't agree on where to settle. And we also didn't know each other that well. Um, so kind of dating in the conventional way that you might to work out whether a partner works or not wasn't a fix for us because we didn't really have it. I didn't have a visa to come and stay here and date. She didn't have the same in the UK. And each country typically doesn't give a visa for that purpose to test out a relationship and date with one another. So... Mm-hmm. Traveling seemed like a good idea, and if your relationship can can survive 24-7 over the period of nearly a year with somebody, then that's you know pretty good testament to a, a solid relationship. So we did that for uh, 10, 10 or so months. Um, I interviewed with Major League Soccer Camps whilst I was on the road traveling. That was a job up in New England. Managed to secure that job and did that for a couple of years in the U.S., really developing soccer within the, the MLS um, structures um, went out to Uganda working with Southern Sudanese refugees for a year after that because we still had this travel bug living overseas issue and we had the opportunity of working with a sporting um, non-governmental organization called Right to Play uh, who are Canadian based but essentially exist for the purpose of using sports and games to teach sub-Saharan African kids about issues such as malaria, HIV, AIDS, um, and those types of um, health-related problems. So we worked in uh, a southern Sudanese refugee settlement for a year, um, situated in northern Uganda. And again, we're faced with this challenge of where do we go go next? Neither of us have uh, visas to live in one another's country at this point. Um, I was fortunate enough to be offered work back again with Sport England. So it ended up being a very extended secondment period, equaling around about four years in total. Went back to work for Sport England. Uh, My wife got a visa to live in the UK. And we, at the point where we moved to the UK, we had this very um, clear agreement that we would spend equal amount of time in one another's country because it was never about settling here, settling in the UK or settling in the US. So we lived in England for six years. Um, I ended up pursuing a PhD and working at the University of Hertfordshire and absolutely loved teaching at the University of Hertfordshire uh, and balancing that with my PhD. We had our first child in England. And at the whilst all of this was going on, I, I was in the US visiting family on vacation and a visiting lecturer position came up at a very small regional college in southern Colorado. Um, I had a conversation with them about the visiting job, and within six weeks we were living in the US, <laughs> and I was teaching at Adam State in that visiting capacity. Did that for two years, 
with every notion of going back to England afterwards because that's how the stars appeared to be aligned. That's where the job offers were coming from. And just at the 11th hour, there was an opportunity to, to come to UCCS. Mm. And I haven't looked back. I mean, it's been my area of, of expertise, if I have one, is on Olympic sport and the governance of Olympic sport. Um, there was an opportunity to teach in that area. Obviously, we're in Olympic City, USA as well. Um, so things worked out particularly well, given what the university was looking for and given my, my skill set. Sorry, that's a very elongated <laughs> no, um, discussion of, of my background and how I arrived here. You have a lot of experience. So yeah. thank you for taking us through that story. So it looks like early on in your career, <clears throat> you obviously have a time period to where you're trying out new opportunities and new experiences, and you're really searching for something that that doesn't burn you out and that still fuels your passion for the sport management industry. Um, moving later in your career, what made you stick with becoming a lecturer and a professor and actually teaching um, the theory of sport management and uh, you know teaching students about this subject rather than actually actively participating in the industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, a, a, I think this really gets into why people do what they do for a living. And we all have different motives. We all have different things that make us tick. I think we all approach the idea of work um, in very personal ways as well. And, and work to me has never just been work. And it never could just be work for me to be satisfied with what it is I'm doing. Um, and I found that out very early about myself. It was kind of uncomfortable initially to find that out about myself because I didn't, I didn't recognize it. I just recognized that... There were times where I was very excited and infused and stimulated by the idea of life and other times where not so much. And a large part of that came down to, and I'm, I'm kind of sad to say it in, in a way because it's not like I want work to define me, but I have to recognize and accept that work plays a large part in whether I'm happy or not. Um, and therefore, being satisfied with my lot at work, being satisfied that I'm actually doing something that's worthy and contributing to society in a productive way is something that I recognized was important to me. Um, and I didn't know that um, prior to kind of having this, um, this period of difficulty really where I was trying to work things out and why was I feeling the way I was feeling. So long story short, through all of my various experiences and doing the things I've done, I felt where I where I was getting the most gratification, where I was getting the greatest sense of actually contributing in a productive way, or as, as able as I was able to contribute in a productive way, given the skill set I have, was in my teaching work, was in going to the University of Hertfordshire, was in working in small groups, teaching last large classes, working one-on-one -on -one with dissertation students and actually helping students to acquire the skills they needed to help them be successful later on in life. And I would go home and feel really fulfilled. It, it may sound awfully crass or, or, or cliched, but um, that's genuinely the case. I would go home feeling like I'd made a contribution that was worthy of the time that I'd put into it. And I didn't get that feeling very often from all of the previous work that I'd done. Hmm. Um, and I still, I don't always have days of that type, but I have more days of that type doing what I'm doing now than I have doing anything else I've done. Interesting. And going back through um, those experiences where you're moving from one position to the next, searching for that, can you speak a little bit towards how those positions or opportunities opened up for you? Do you think it was... 
due to your experience and background in education or were you actively looking for these new opportunities to arise? The opportunities within higher education or just generally across? Um, just generally. So from your time in Sport England to the MLS camps to even the uh, the mountain leader yeah. position. I, th- I think it was always, I mean, very often you are seeking out particular opportunities that suit where you are in your life. Um, or you're in a fortunate position where somebody is seeking you out. And I think early on in my career, it was me seeking out the opportunities that I felt mirrored where I was and what I needed at a particular time and I was fortunate enough where I had put myself in a situation where I had the necessary skills knowledge experiences and in some case relationships to actually get those opportunities um, as as time has gone on I feel like the relationships and the work that I've done and the experiences that I've had have actually got into a position where you start to get emails and you start to get phone calls where people are actually seeking you out or asking your availability. Um, and that certainly happened with Sport England the second time around. I didn't approach Sport England. Sport England approached me and asked me what I was up to and whether I would be interested in coming back and working for them. And I think that really reinforces the idea of, you know, always always being the best you can be accepting the flaws you have but wanting to do better wanting to improve taking your work seriously not being a free rider and wanting to contribute in a positive and productive manner and if you are that type of person and you live by those types of values i think over time the experience you have will pay off because you will start to rather than being the person that's always pursuing you will start to be pursued by others uh, and i've certainly had that experience myself uh, it wasn't my experience at uccs the opportunity at uccs arose my thinking prior to the uccs opportunity was that i would return to the uk where i essentially had a much stronger network being british and working most of my life in the uk I know far more people there and knowing people is you know, very helpful in terms of, um, of pursuing your career aspirations. So it was good fortune. And I think it's important not to underestimate that. Sometimes we just need a little bit of luck as well. <laughs> and with UCCS, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I had pretty much the skill set that the job was calling for, not only in terms of Olympic sport, development and governments but also in terms of sport marketing uh, and also in terms of soccer and the soccer track that the school was looking to to start off so there's there's really no claim to um skill or anything i've done in the past really just more a case of being fortunate being in the right place at the right time um and and thankfully having the right skill set that matched what the school was looking for this semester you've kind of taken us through what you grappled with getting to the point that you're actually finding something that you're passionate about, something that you find purpose in. So I'm sure being a professor, you see a lot of students that are just here taking classes to take classes. And you see probably a lot that are here to take classes to actually set themselves up for success that are really grappling through what they want to do. So what what is some of the advice that you give to the ones that really actually want to figure out what they want to do or what advice would you give them that you wish someone had given you when you were around that age? I, th- I think the the most important, I, I wish what somebody had said to me earlier on, because I wasn't, 
And I, I, I'd say this, you know, I, I had my first class of the semester this morning and shared this with my class, but I never know how it's being received in terms of the level of genuineness that the students perceive from me. But as an undergrad, I was not a particularly motivated undergrad in my first two years of studies. And I think I was working a lot of stuff out, including why am I here and why am I doing this? And this is this really what I want to be doing? Um, and I thought there was something very strange in that. And I didn't realize that whilst there may be people that apply themselves more fully in the first couple of years study, there are probably a higher number of folk that are really uncertain and that are struggling with a lot of issues, including fear um, and uncertainty about what it is I'm doing and the journey that I'm on. And I really don't feel like I had a lot of support. I didn't really have a lot of awareness as an 18 or 19 year old that the feelings I was experiencing are probably quite common amongst people of my age group. Mm -hmm. So there was something in me that felt like I was a little bit out there or a little bit strange or a little bit different. Where in fact, now I know years on and having spoken to some of those peers that I was in class with, because many of them are still my friends, um, that's not unusual at all. So it would have been useful for me to recognize that a lot earlier than I actually did. Um, I think also realizing as an 18, 19 year old that people, they may hear you, they may see you, but they feel your attitude. And I really didn't get that as a youngster. So mm. I think I had an attitude that was far less positive than my attitude generally is today. And that probably didn't help me an awful lot as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. I think I came off as a stroppy so-and-so uh, to many folk that I crossed paths with as a youngster. And if I'd have realized that and recognized that they were actually seeing something that I didn't mean to project, I probably would have tried my hardest to change what I was projecting. Well, yeah, it's emotional intelligence is something we're constantly working on. Right. I find that I have a tendency to be that person that is always wanting to be right, and I don't even realize it. So right. like you were talking about, that self-awareness to actually realize how is what I'm saying impacting other people is super right. important. Yeah, so attitude, emotional intelligence, I mean, the just and, and self-reflection skills, you know, just being a little bit more savvy and being willing to... I suppose, self-reflect on my own strengths and weaknesses in a slightly more, well, not a slightly more, um, a gargantuan, <laughs> uh, a, a more honest way. I think that would have helped me out an awful lot as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. I think I kidded myself an awful lot. Hmm. So during that period of time, did you have any mentors? Anyone to, because you mentioned that you didn't really have a whole lot of support. I didn't. I mean, I moved um, from a smaller city in the east of England, Norwich, uh, down to London, which is kind of, I suppose, a little bit like moving from, um, in some respects, uh, Pueblo or Colorado Springs up to New York. Hmm. Uh, that That's the, 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 the parallel. Uh, it was a big step. Culturally, it was a very big step. Um, and I don't think I had the support structures in place particularly around my own peers. I mean, I had my parents. Um, I wasn't the best listener of my to my parents when I was an 18, 19-year-old. But I didn't really have anybody within the faculty or the staff or anybody within the university, my own peer group, that I would classify uh, as a mentor um, at university. And I think that could have made a really big difference. Hmm. Once I got into my career and once I left 
once I left university and started pursuing career interests, I commonly had mentors uh, within the organizations I was working at. And I think that made significant differences in my confidence, in my ability to self-reflect, mm-hmm. uh, and in my ability to kind of um, go on in leaps and strides in terms of my own self-development. It's great because they ask you questions that you wouldn't have thought of. Exactly. And I think they make you realize that some of the thoughts you are having aren't as abstract or aren't as strange as you might initially think they are because your mentors themselves have gone through similar things. And did you actively seek out these mentors throughout the different organizations or did it happen more naturally? I would say it happened more organically. Um, Certainly earlier on in my career, I feel like it was more of a folk taking you under their wing and making sure that you had the support, had the resources that you needed. I feel like, so I transitioned from university as a graduate into the workforce graduating from undergrad in the early 1990s. And I feel like, particularly in the in the UK, mentoring was still a relatively unknown concept. Or if it was done, it was done only in a small number of, mm. of firms. Um, that became more common as my career developed. So certainly as we got into the 20, latter part of the, the 20th century, early part of the 21st century, Mentoring was talked about more frequently, more commonly. So my second stint at Sport England, for example, even though I'd worked with the organization before, I was automatically assigned a mentor. But that would have been very surprising to me in the early 90s. So it was a little bit of both. I would say organic early on, but as my career has developed and evolved, then I feel like those structures have been more thought through and it's more typical for you to be, for me to have been allocated a mentor. Interesting. So, speaking from my own personal experience, you're one of my favorite professors here at UCCS, and I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me, but um, you actually have a really interesting teaching style, in my opinion, to where it's a mixture of you hold your students to a very high standard, but you're not one of those professors where, you know, they're just like sink or swim in my class. If you don't pass, you don't pass. I don't really care. You really do offer your students a lot of help and support. And you're a very fair professor, in my opinion. Um, so what has lent itself to your teaching style? And I guess in essence, what has lent itself to your leadership style as well? Because I think, you know, being a professor is obviously you're leading students or people in a new generation to, you know, kind of a, a higher level. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. I mean, that, that is honestly what I strive for, is to um, be a teacher that is respectful, uh, to be a teacher that is challenging, to stretch people's comfort zones. Um, but at the same time, not to do that where the student feels like they're isolated and it's sink or swim, but they have a, a, a support system um, around them to help them um, succeed. Um, I think my own experiences as an undergrad student were instrumental in my approach to teaching because, like I said, I I wasn't your stereotypical undergraduate student, Uh, particularly we do three-year undergraduate degrees in the UK and I really struggled for the first two years. I struggled in terms of motivation. I struggled in terms of really applying myself because of the motivation issues. And my grade suffered as a consequence, which leads to all sorts of questions about 
what am I doing? <laughs> this is, really isn't for me. I should be pursuing some other kind of vocation. Um, and I think seeing those teachers, um, those professors around the university that were able to support me despite those difficulties really had, and even though I didn't appreciate it at the time, I think looking back now, that really had an influence on me being a university professor in terms of what do I want to model. And I'm not saying for one minute that I am copying what I've seen from another professor, but there have certainly been sources of inspiration and influences in behaviors that I've seen in other professors that I have found myself to be motivating that helped me to turn it around from year two to year three so that I ended up graduating with a 2-1 degree, which is a, a relatively decent degree. Um, so I think certainly my own experience as a student has been um, really important. I think what I was saying earlier about my approach to work and kind of the effect that my work has on how I feel generally about life is also really important. So I need to go, I know now that I need to go home at the end of the working day, the end of the working week, the end of the semester, knowing that I've done my best as a professor to try and help people succeed. And that genuinely is important to me. And if I don't feel like I've done that, I feel like I've somehow cheated or I've been lesser than I think I can be. And that to me is important. It's a standard I hold very dear. It's a standard I hold myself to. And therefore I'm constantly striving to be as good and um, better than I was last time um, in the classroom in terms of supporting students. Uh, and I also think that on the flip side of what I was saying about the inspiring professor is being clear about what I don't want to be. And you know, I don't want students to come in my class having spent whatever it is that you spend on course fees nowadays just feeling like you're going through the motions, mm -hmm. just feeling like you're doing this for three credit hours. I want my students to be taken out of their comfort zones as, as uncomfortable as that feels. I want that to happen. I want students to be challenged and stretched because I feel like it's in that space where learning occurs. It's in that space where students realize more about themselves. Um, and it's in those moments where we really start to perhaps challenge some of our own preconceived notions about what we're capable of or, or what our own aspirations are or, or what we really can be successful at if we challenge ourselves. So there's probably more I can say on that, but I'll, to, in the interest of keeping it somewhat succinct, they're probably three of the major factors. Okay. And the sports management industry, obviously, it's a very competitive industry or anything in the sports industry in general. Um, so if a, a young student comes up to you and they're obviously really motivated to succeed and they want to work in the sports industry in some capacity, what do you tell them are invaluable skills that they should work on and learn? And what are kind of the major uh, new areas of opportunity that a younger person either entering college or about to graduate should look at if they want to work in sport? Um, so I think I'm, I'm kind of self-checking here because I hear, I heard this so often as a youngster myself and would get frustrated with hearing it. Um, but perseverance in sport <laughs> is critical. Um, if you're going to pack up and jack it in after 50 applications because you've got nowhere, you're probably never going to get anywhere. 
perseverance is absolutely critical and being determined to just keep going, keep going, however many knockbacks, um, I think is critical to getting that start because I think so many folk get disillusioned, think it's impossible and give up. Um, so if, if this is something that an individual really wants to pursue and their heart is set on a career in sport management, I think it's possible, but you have to set heart and mind to it and you have to be prepared for the long game. That doesn't mean that a, a job's going to come in the next few months. It may mean that you need to pick up a, a number of different temporary jobs in the meantime. It may mean that you need to go out and volunteer and intern at a few different places in order to build and stretch further develop your network. Um, but having that tenacity of mind is, is absolutely critical. Um, the network, again, it, I don't think there's any kind of um, magic dust here around how, how one goes about being successful in sport management. I think these things are all relatively well known, but having a network in place, not just a network of contacts, but a network of folk who know what you're about as an individual. Mm not just know what you're about in terms of what your skills are, but what you're about as an individual. What is your character? What are your characteristics? What sets you apart as an individual? And the more folk that you have that are aware of that, not because they've read it on a resume, uh, but because they've seen it in practice, I think, I've seen, I don't just think, I've seen in our own community here, that's the difference between an organization creating a position for you and an organization saying thank you, you did wonderful work and all the best for the future. Um, in terms of your, your second part, which was about new opportunities, I think it all too often we jump into um, the exciting kind of environment of social media, AI, technology, etc. And I do think that is exciting for sport and there are opportunities there for sure. But the conventional opportunities that have existed for many a year are also still around. Um, and we need good quality, high-performing professionals in those areas as well. So areas such as event management or ticket sales or partnership marketing, those positions are still around and will still be around in the foreseeable future. Um, so I wouldn't discount those. I think where we are seeing... Um, new territory is around, um, or, or new opportunities, I should say, is around you know the, the use of big data, data analytics, and how that's informing dynamic pricing within sport. So rather than there being flat fee uh, pricing structures to go and watch collegiate athletics or pro sports, we're seeing more of the airline model, which mm -hmm. is fed by you know, demand models, um, and demand then affecting um, pricing. But having the professionals that are able to undertake uh, the modeling, look at the data and predict pricing. Um, I think there are opportunities there. I think the whole area, and this is by no means uh, my kind of um, backyard in terms of expertise, but the whole area of technological enhancement and AI and how AI can be used, not just in the business of sport in terms of spectatorship, um, and enhancing spectatorship opportunities of live sport, but also in terms of performance enhancement for athletes. So how we can use AI to f further support the development of youth um, 
and teenage athletes, um, I think is a, is a grand area of opportunity. I think some of the changes we're seeing in Olympic sport in this country as well, where there has always been a very exacting focus on elite sport development. And I think we're starting to see that change and become far more diluted, where it's not just about elite development, but it's about the whole sport development continuum. It's about getting people involved in sport and making sure that we have the best quality pipelines in, in place to support the holistic development of athletes. And I wouldn't be surprised that there are a number of areas of opportunities um, in, in that line of work. We're going to transition more into our bullet questions. So recommend one resource that's helpful for you in everyday life. Trustworthy news sources. <laughs> Do you have one in particular that you... You know, this is where nationalism gets horrible, right? Because you are indoctrinated with certain ideas from a very young age. So my go-to is still always BBC. Hmm. But I justify that on the basis of where I come from and what I know about where I come from. Yeah. Um, rather than saying this is better than that, it's more like I grew up with it, I know it, and I trust it. Yeah. So the BBC tends to be my go-to news source. And what is one book that you recommend? I think Enlightenment Now is one that, that comes to mind, it, mainly because it's a book that um, I've recently read by Steven Pinker. Um, and it's, it's been striking for me because I think, and again, maybe this is the Britishness, mm -hmm. um, I am a naturally skeptical person. Um, and what Enlightenment Now has done for me is kind of create a historical narrative where I see the progress of man and woman, where I see that actually when we compare where we're at today to the centuries of past, we're actually making positive progress. As a society, we are moving in the right direction, although sometimes it may not feel like it. Um, so that book was inspiring to me because it made me realize the depths of my own cynicism and helped me to check those. Spencer, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Again, thank you for being here. Share one parting piece of wisdom, the best way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. One way of wisdom is um, I think people will often forget what it is you've said, but seldom will they forget the way in which you've made them feel. Um, and I think attitude is everything in that respect. Um, people can reach out to me and contact me at my UCCS email address, which is sharris2 at uccs.edu. Um, I don't know my office phone number. Okay. But that's probably the best way to contact me. Awesome. Again, thank you for being on the podcast, Spencer. This is John Mark. And this is Brent. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Brent and I really enjoyed talking with Spencer. He had a lot of wisdom. And for me, it was an industry that I didn't know too much about. So it's, it was fun learning um, more about exactly what goes into sports management, specifically from the perception and standpoint of a professor. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for another episode of Attitude Check and follow us or like us on Facebook to stay up to date on all things Attitude Check. And be sure to tap that subscribe button on your favorite podcast hosting platform, because let's face it, you know you want to. And we'd love to hear from you. And you can email us at attitudecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time.